0: London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit, and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around the streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of a gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of these stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drees and this is Macabre London. For anyone who suffered with mental illness in the Victorian times, there was often only three paths that would be laid out for you. End up in prison, end up on the street, or be locked inside an asylum, never to be discharged. For the Victorians, the mentally ill were an inconvenience, and in a time when your family could drop you off at the asylum, saying you were not right in the head, you could be locked away for life on the basis of their diagnosis alone. Before the invention of the National Health Service, If your family could afford for you to be inside an asylum, then you would stay there. If not, you'd be left on the street, and most likely not have a particularly long lifespan. Before the mental health reform of the 1950s, and the invention of many experimental treatments, those in an asylum were effectively locked away to not only protect themselves, but also those on the outside. If someone suffered a psychotic break and checked into an asylum, then it was quite likely when they felt better they wouldn't be allowed to leave. This made anyone who became mentally ill afraid of seeking treatment, which would have made matters much worse. For some, a fate worse than death was to be incarcerated in Bethlehem Hospital, a hospital so famous that it became synonymous with chaos and disorder, coining the term Bedlam, which is still used to describe anything unruly today. Bethlehem opened its doors in 1337 and with only a basic knowledge of medicine, the inmates were subjected to some odd schools of thought, especially when it came to treatment. The original Bethlehem Hospital was an incredibly dismal place to be incarcerated. The inmates were subject to dreadful conditions from the get-go. The original Bethlehem Hospital was very small and overcrowded. The patients would be forced into overpacked cells, which were mixed gender, often resulting in abuse from patients and also the staff, and subjected to bizarre treatments. For the patients back then, the main reasons behind mental health issues were thought to be an imbalance in the four humors blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Patients would be fed purging prescriptions in a hope that they would vomit out the demons inside them. Leeches would be applied to purge the bad blood, and regular beatings would be delivered in the hope that the devil would decide to leave its host's body. Food was in short supply, water was restricted and often patients would be chained to walls and shackled to avoid them attacking other inmates and staff. As the Victorian times progressed, the attitude towards people with mental health issues was changing. Even though there was still quite a lot of fear associated with mental health, the way they were cared for was improving. Bethlehem Hospital had moved sites and was now much more plush, so much so that the wards were now carpeted, wallpapered and could be considered cosy. The treatments had changed, and mental health care was now seen as something that was evolving and helping its patients, rather than hindering them, as it had been in previous incarcerations of the hospital. Born in 1817 in Chatham, in Kent, to Mary Ann and Robert Dad, Richard was one of seven children. His father saw great promise in the young boy and nurtured his creative spirit. If Richard enjoyed doing something then his father would encourage his endeavours in the hope that it would prove prosperous for him when he grew up. His artistic talent at school was unparalleled to his fellow students and as he grew it was clear to his parents that Richard would surpass the norm. Richard's attention to detail in his paintings snagged him a spot at the prestigious and heralded Royal Academy of Arts at the age of just 17. Here he met a few other promising artists and again surpassed them all winning a medal for life drawing. However, Richard didn't enjoy the conformity of the Academy, and so with the help of a few fellow students, he formed a band of artists known as the Clique, consisting of Alfred Elmore, Augustus Egg, William Frith, Henry O'Neill, John Philip, and Dad himself. The Clique weren't interested in sticking to the rules of the Academy. Instead, they sought to improve their work by having weekly meetings where they would create a piece to be critiqued by their peers. The clique also sought to help out other young artists who couldn't or wouldn't be accepted into the academy in order to nurture underprivileged talent. But due to its members being sporadically present, the scheme didn't take off and was soon abandoned. Notably the most talented of the clique, this meant that Richard was now a force to be reckoned with in the art world, and it wasn't long before his reputation preceded him. He was heralded as the next big thing in the art scene in London, and before long, many people wanted to be associated with him. At the age of 26, Richard was selected to go on a grand tour by Sir Thomas Phillips, the former mayor of Newport. To Phillips, Dad was an excellent choice to take with him, as he'd be able to document their travels through his artwork, and for Richard, his skill would be broadened due to the exposure to many different landscapes from which he could paint. Grand tours were a popular pastime for wealthy Victorian men, and for Richard, the tour would be a valuable learning opportunity. When the tour reached Egypt, Richard discovered hieroglyphs and motifs and learned about Egyptian gods. This wasn't anything unusual, as the Victorians were fascinated with Egyptian motifs, but Richard became increasingly fanatical about this new information. As the tour became more intense, so did Richard. He started to have delusions and began telling people that he was somehow related to the Egyptian god Osiris, the god of the underworld. Osiris, in Egyptian folklore, was murdered by his brother, chopped up and scattered around for his wife to collect. When she found all of his body parts, she put his body back together by wrapping him in bandages, which is said to be where the Egyptians discovered their propensity towards mummification. Richard began claiming that he was being instructed by Osiris to carry out his bidding. He began ranting that Osiris wanted him to track down the devil and to destroy him in whatever form he inhabited. He also started to become violent towards those around him, and dismissing it as heatstroke, the group were pleased when Richard opted to leave them to convalesce. Realising that he may be at the start of a mental health episode, and knowing that there were cases of mental health issues in a few of his siblings back home, Richard was concerned for his own well-being, and to stop exacerbating the problem, he decided to travel back to England alone, but he almost didn't make it. During a stop-off in Italy, Richard began to doubt the authenticity and holiness of the Pope. He began to hear Osiris telling him to exorcise the demon from the Pope, but he defied his instructions and left for home without making it to the Vatican. Eventually, Richard made it back home, to London, and his father noticed that things weren't 100% right with him. Richard had evolved some unusual habits, including strange dietary needs. He existed only on eggs and ale, and with his father growing increasingly worried for his mental well-being, they took him to a doctor. The doctor prescribed treatment via an asylum, but Robert thought this would only exacerbate things for his son, and instead decided that Richard just needed to take a break from the intensity of the last few months. Richard's father decided to book a trip for the two of them, so he could get some fresh air and to calm his overactive mind. The two headed back to Kent to decompress and relax. Richard's father thought being in the countryside would be calming for Richard, but unbeknownst to him, Cyrus's instructions were becoming more and more pressing. And his head was being increasingly filled with violent thoughts richard began searching for the devil under osiris's instruction and on the 28th of august 1843 he decided he would placate the god of the underworld one evening after a trip to the ship Inn in cobham richard suggested he and his father were to take an evening constitutional back through the cobham park in order to walk off their meal osiris had informed richard that he had narrowed down the host of the demon Richard had begun to experience visions of devils and demons crawling all over his father, and said that particularly when he spoke, he could see them frolicking in his mouth, making him believe he was now entirely possessed, and not his father at all. Whilst on the walk home from the pub, Richard's father, feeling the effect of a few pints of ale, popped behind a tree to relieve himself. As he did so, Richard snuck up behind him, punched him in the back of the head, drew a straight razor across his neck, and stabbed the body of the one he believed to be the fallen angel, placating Osiris. It's not known exactly what happened next, but Richard fled the scene and left his father's body to be found the next day by a man and his son taking an early ride in the park. The body was moved to a nearby shop, so it was away from any other unfortunate prying eyes and inspected by a doctor. The wounds on the body indicated that a struggle had taken place as the wrists were heavily bruised. The stab wounds were also noted to have caused two puncture wounds to the lungs, along with a deep heavy gash through the neck. It's not known in which order the injuries were inflicted, but perhaps the throat was cut last, as this would explain the struggle marks on the wrists of someone trying to battle an attacker away, something that probably wouldn't be possible whilst losing a vast amount of blood from your neck. Realising what he'd done, and now completely under the instruction of Osiris on a constant basis, Richard fled to Dover with the intention of boarding a ferry to Calais and burying himself in the hustle and bustle of Paris. Back in Cobham, the police were concerned for Richard's safety and thought that maybe he had been attacked and fled the scene and later died somewhere of his injuries. But when Richard's brother attended the scene, he knew instantly that his brother would be the murderer. Fearing the worst, the family thought Richard may have also committed suicide but were happy to receive reports that he'd been sighted trying to obtain a passport back in London. On the journey to Calais, Richard was stopped by customs officers at the border, as after the murder, he'd not changed his clothes and was heavily bloodstained. Strangely, he was released, and with a fresh clean outfit on, he went on his way. Between Calais and Paris, Richard yet again heard the whisperings of Osiris and tried to murder a fellow passenger with a razor, but was restrained by his fellow passengers. French police were called, and Richard was detained. In a rare moment of lucidity, and perhaps relieved at having been caught, Richard confessed to the murder of his father, Robert, and willingly entered a French asylum, where he stayed for ten months. Things might have been much worse had Richard not been apprehended on his way to Paris. Amongst his belongings was found a list of names of people whom he'd been instructed to kill by the voice in his head. On the list included the Emperor of Austria, but damningly at the top was his father. After an assessment from a French doctor, it was agreed that Richard was suffering from a disorder which he referred to as homicidal monomania, meaning in layman's terms that he was obsessed with murder, the origin of which was said to be the contributing factors of nervous exhaustion and heat he experienced on the grand tour. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. At the time when Richard killed his father, murder was punishable by the death penalty. However, as Richard had received a diagnosis of a mental health disorder he would be facing a different route of conviction than that of a regular criminal. Luckily for Richard, in 1843, after a person suffering from a similar condition had murdered the Prime Minister's secretary, a rule was brought in to protect those who were mentally ill from facing the same consequences as a regular criminal. Richard wouldn't face trial, but did have to attend a preliminary hearing where he was said to look like a man who wasn't 100% in control of his mental state and, as such, would escape the noose. Richard was sent to Bethlehem Hospital to be an indefinite patient, with no opportunity of ever being released. Bethlehem had come on leaps and bounds from its days known as the definition of chaos. Wards were now refined, and patients were expected to be allowed a certain degree of freedom within its grounds, and the trust to pursue their personal ambitions. Richard wasn't a huge celebrity before he murdered his father, but his heinous act did earn him infamy, and the staff were understandably beguiled by his talent. Once Richard had settled into his new home, he was allowed to draw and consequently to paint, even contributing to the decor of Bethlehem by painting murals on the walls for the enjoyment of the staff and patients. He was said to be a model patient, but was prone to occasional bouts of violence against both staff and patients, but was said to always be very apologetic for his actions, as if a switch in personality would unleash his undesirable traits. Whilst incarcerated in Bethlehem, Richard created densely intricate work. His most famous, The Fairy Fellow's Masterstroke, was painted whilst on the ward at Bethlehem. Considered to be a masterclass in detail, the painting tells a story of a fairy who is about to split an acorn. But interestingly, missing from the scene is the blade from the axe. Perhaps a nod towards Dad's murder of his father and how he may have wished the blade he used were to disappear and only be a handle. Richard's family were not surprised at all by the murder. In fact, mental health issues ran in their family. Richard had two siblings, who had also required full-time carers in order to keep them from harming themselves or others. For some reason, Richard didn't receive the same treatment from his family, with his father choosing to take on the role, perhaps with the knowledge that he would unavoidably die at the hands of his son, saving someone else from the same fate. The reporting around Dad at the time was refreshingly discerning and perspicacious, sitting jarringly with how mental health is stigmatised in the present day. In one newspaper, Richard was reported to be unfortunate in his mania, and a few other reports commented on his inability to be acting within a capable and conscious rationale. After 20 years in Bethlehem, Richard was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane, and whilst incarcerated there, he was allowed to continue painting, He would paint pieces for the nurses and doctors and create artworks on request for them in the hope that he would be treated more favourably, and so as to strike up a good relationship with his carers. As a result, he was treated well and given everything he requested to allow him to be comfortable and creative up until his death. Richard contracted tuberculosis, and before long passed away at the age of 68 and was buried in the grounds of Broadmoor. Richard's work was somewhat forgotten after his death, but in the 1960s, it saw a revival due to the interest in mental health reform, as the state of many asylums in the 1960s were under scrutiny due to reports of patients facing some insufferable conditions. Richard's works were explored as a representation of the creative mind, and how mental health sufferers, even though they could be capable of some horrid things, were also capable of creating beautiful artworks, whether that be paintings, drawing, or even poetry. This is something the current Bethlehem Hospital strives to do with its patients, holding regular exhibitions and even displaying patients' artworks in their museum and art gallery. Richard's artwork has gone on to be repurposed and realised in a few different forms, perhaps most notably in the Queen song, The Fairy Fellow's Masterstroke, which refers to Dad's most infamous painting, and recently, the same painting was also used by Dr Martin's to emblazon on a range of boots and bags proving that Dad's work, though classical in design, is influential to other artists. It's obvious to see now, looking back, that had things gone differently and his plea of insanity had been disallowed, Richard could have been hanged and the world would have been devoid of his art. Instead, due to a Victorian healthcare system with a caring understanding of his condition, people have enjoyed his art for multiple generations and for many more to come leaving a legacy of a self-confessed murdering madman hanging in art galleries all over the world. Thank you for joining me for that episode of Macabre London. Have you ever seen any of Richard Dadd's work before? I was pleasantly surprised when I started doing the research for this episode because I then started recognising his paintings all over the place, so I hope that happens to you too. I hope you can uh, now spot Richard Dad's quite easily. And maybe you've got one hiding in your house somewhere. Sell it for lots of money. Why not? just like a couple did on Antiques Roadshow a few years back. Please pop me a comment down below to let me know what you think of this episode, who's your favourite artist and who do you like the most, I'd love to know. If you'd like to support the show and to help us create more episodes then please go over to our Patreon, all the links will be in the description box below. And tiers on Patreon start from as little as $1 and go up from there, and different tiers have different rewards so um, head on over there now. I also have an Amazon wishlist, so if you'd like to uh, support the show by buying bits and pieces for me to use for research and also things to help me record, that would be really appreciated. And we also have a one-off PayPal donation button as well, so um, again, have a look in the in the description below, you'll see all the details for that. And now also, after two years of running the podcast, finally have t-shirts. I know a lot of people have been asking for them, so I eventually uh, have got myself together and uh, ordered some t-shirts. So if you would like to purchase one, you can get a discount if you sign up to be a patron. And the Etsy shop, again, is in the show notes. Don't forget to follow me on all my social media so you can keep up to date with what I'm doing outside of the show, and drop me a comment if you come and follow me because I always follow back. Thank you so much for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past, I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you next time.